0: If you believe that business can be a highly effective force for good, then you'll really enjoy this episode. Our guest is a widely followed expert on marketing and management, consumer decision making, business education and learning, and business's role in trust and economic opportunity. My conversation with Bill Bolding, Dean of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, on the Manage Your Message podcast.
1: Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr.
0: Come on in. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. This is the point where I not only introduce you to our expert guest, but also share why I issued the invitation. Fact is, I've been learning from Bill Bolding for, let's call it, lots of years now, <laughs> and I wanted to let you in on some of that. I first met him while an MBA student at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. I was a young and particularly naive student, while Dr. Bolding was a young marketing professor on the rise who had joined the faculty the year prior. Fast forward to 2011 when Bill was first appointed to a two-year term as dean. He was appointed to a five-year term in 2013 and recently re-upped for another five years, much to the delight of Team Fuqua around the world. During his time as dean, the Fuqua School has been consistently judged among the elite business schools, including a number one ranking in 2014 by Bloomberg Businessweek. Millions of people are learning from Bill Boulding these days, even those who might not be able to find Durham, North Carolina on a map. He regularly shares insights on LinkedIn and has been named a top voice on the platform in 2016. I recommend you follow him. He also writes for Fortune and Harvard Business Review and is regularly interviewed in media such as CNBC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and Financial Times. And Bill, now you get to add the Manager Message podcast. Bill is also highly involved in big issues facing business and society. He was invited to the White House as part of an initiative that developed best practices for how business schools can encourage success for women and working families. He has engaged with the New York Federal Reserve to see how business schools can help to rebuild trust in the financial services sector. He chairs the group that administers the GMAT entrance exam for graduate business schools, and I think he has promised to reevaluate the grade he assigned me in marketing (laughs) management many years ago no promises. Bill Bolding, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and a
2: privilege to be here. And I have to say, listening to that introduction, it all sounded way better than the
0: real thing. Well, let's proceed and we'll let we'll let everyone decide. I, I think the real thing is just as good. But let's begin your story in the middle or, or kind of close to it. You have a productive record in scholarship and consulting. Having been for a time a university faculty member myself, the administrative route often is not a real bargain and it's just a different role. So what prompted you to consider taking a managerial track that ultimately led you to being dean and not just stay solely in the professor lane?
2: It sometimes surprises people from outside of academia that faculty don't actually have aspirations to become deans and presidents and so on. Rather, they became academics because they were really interested in teaching, in research. And so the challenging thing is that somewhere you have to find people from among that community who who chose a career track that's all about doing things on your own to figure out how you work together with people and to, to build something great. And so... I'm like everyone else. I I never expected to to be in the position that that I'm in today. I thought I would mind my own business and and engage in my research and teaching and but having said that, there's a third dimension which is the idea of serving the institution for which you work. And I was lucky that I had mentors who really impressed upon me the importance that you you have to give back and help build the institution that you're a part of. And so they were great role models and, and beyond role models. They kind of twisted my arm to, to take on administrative roles within the university. And they kept trying to find something I could do. They're probably still looking, but here I am today as dean after a variety of managerial roles over the years.
0: There was a uh, story, Bill, recently in Harvard Business Review, that I thought was fascinating, and it really gets to the role of the leader in a a big organization in particular. The authors had arranged to track in some detail the schedules of 27 large company CEOs over time. They engaged their executive assistants, and they tracked, I think, for about a three-month period. And the overall finding that jumped out at me was that these CEOs spent, on average, only 3% of their time talking to customers. They spent more time talking to their boards, a lot more time in internal meetings and just other things that pulled at their schedule. Mm -hmm. So given your leadership role, as well as the marketing expertise that you have, what's your reaction to that? And how do you stay out of the bubble?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I guess my first comment would be, it's not that surprising that these authors found results like this. What happens when you're leading a large organization is that you get caught up in so many things. You have so many stakeholders who all are very, very important and can kind of light fires in different ways that require attention. And before you know it, you've pushed aside this one group that is so fundamentally and foundationally Important in terms of the the reason why you exist is it, you, you kind of lose track of of customers. And back in the days when when I really was uh, allegedly a marketing professor, I mean, this was a, a big point of emphasis that that if you're going to be a great organization, a great company, you really have to constantly hear the voice of the customer and use that voice in ways that that guide the activities of the organization and and that you can't outsource that responsibility and hope to be the kind of organization that has the innovation and the value creation of relevance to a group of customers over a sustainable time horizon. So so it's a, I guess my reaction is it's not that surprising, but it is discouraging that leaders find themselves in this position. And so the message is that they have to figure out structurally how they keep themselves out of the box that they can find themselves in of, of doing everything but some of the, the things that are most critical to their future.
0: It was a, struck me as a related note. Just a few years ago, you led a, a rebranding effort for the Fuqua School of Business. Now, for our listeners, higher education organizations depend upon consensus. Right? You, you, you're serving a lot of different constituencies and everyone has something to say yes. and wants to, wants to be heard. <laughs> so I would think in, in many ways... A, an institution of higher education is similar maybe to a nonprofit or a professional association or many global spread out companies that uh, likewise need a lot of people to be on board to have any sort of major change, including the way that they talk about themselves. So could you describe a bit of the, the process? Because you couldn't as dean, even if you thought you knew the answer, you can't just say, hey, everyone here's what the message needs to be, and here's what you need to do to help spread it. That would fall under its own weight. So could you describe the process that you designed as the leader and what you learned in that process that, that may, uh, may be helpful to other leaders as well? I guess the
2: starting point is your observation that, that I can't just from the top down say, you know, ta-da, this is what we'll do uh, starting as of now in an environment where the people in your community are your brand and represent your brand on a a daily basis. And so to simply say, you know, tomorrow change everything, we create huge issues in terms of authenticity, which is, (laughs) By the way, a, a, a hallmark of a, a strong brand is that there is real substance, genuine substance behind that brand. And so, I guess the first thing was to say, "Okay, I can't tell everyone what to do," and more than that, we can't tell everyone what to do. Meaning the people who are working at the business school, because we have a, we have a bunch of stakeholders who who care deeply about who we are and how we represent ourselves and so so we turned to an outside source to begin the process simply of collecting data from all different stakeholders and the independence here was important number 1 that that it didn't feel like we were trying to push a particular line of reasoning. So you need you need that independence. But the second key thing is you need ears that also have independence. And so that as they're collecting data from your various stakeholders, that they hear it in a way that is not biased by perhaps, again, what it is we want to say. And so I think keeping in mind those two things, that, that you really have to be very, very careful and thoughtful as you learn about who you are as a starting point. And of course, every brand has to have this authentic core and every brand is trying to be aspirational in some way. You can't just knock out what's there to begin with and go right for the the aspirational content. And so the, the listening part is extremely important and listening with with independent unbiased ears. Then once you hear that in our case it was in some ways reassuring to hear back from outside sources who we were in in their eyes and in their ears as they put together the the feedback from a wide variety of stakeholders and i think that that's a really good check to, to make sure that, that you're not just making things up that are wildly inconsistent with the, the beliefs that, that others have. And, and keep in mind that ultimately all the brand is are the associations that people have in their minds with your firm, with your product, with your service. And so kind of the good news for us was that the associations were, were on track and we then had the ability to move to the next phase to say, okay, then how can we put this together in a way that really crystallizes who it is that we are, what we stand for, and the kinds of uh, associations that we want to have on an enduring basis with our community and with prospective members of our community. So the next phase is to, to really go on the road and, and to engage with those stakeholders around, sharpening up a, a message about that brand, and through that iterative process, then reaching a point where you find that that people accept and believe that it, the, the brand message resonates with them. They feel it is authentic, and and it excites them because without that you can't then send out brand advocates who will work on your behalf. And so, because at the end of the day, you can have something on paper, but but you're going to have to bring that to life. And in the world we live in today, one of the things that is certainly true for us, but is true for now pretty much every organization, is that your brand is not going to be simply shaped by the message that you send out. It's going to be shaped by a huge number of people through social media, through their networks and through their words, their deeds. And so you need to really activate that network in a way that you get consistency in the messaging. Because at the end of the day, the brand equity that you build is going to be very dependent on your ability to get consistent
0: messaging around who you are. And that consistency, as you say, it's going to come from people believing it. And feeling it's relevant and real, I imagine some of the constituencies that you're talking to, certainly it's, it's the students, it's the companies that are hiring your students, it's families, it's your internal staff, it's the rest of campus. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? Right, right.
2: And you also have to think about how is this message received by people who are not even really... In your community yet. So they're possible members of your community, whether that's as students, as faculty members, as staff, as potential recruiters of our students, and so on. And so one thing you have to be careful about is you, you need to be thoughtful about how your message is received by people in the sense of new customers, new constituents, new stakeholders, to make sure that that you've chosen a brand and a positioning that is sustainable over the long haul. Because one of the realities of life today is that you have to constantly reinvent yourself, drive the innovation to keep yourself relevant. And you need a brand foundation that gives you the ability to retain your core while at the same time making the, the, the innovative changes around the margins that allow you to
0: maintain your relevance in an ever-changing world. And that brings to this <laughs> fast-paced, noisy, changing world. There's a topic here, and I'll try not to spend too long in the setup, but it, there are worlds which are potentially colliding for organizations these days. It's all around the role of that organization leader when it comes to speaking publicly on controversial stuff. I know that You're close to a number of very visible public CEOs, Tim Cook of Apple, a lot of others as well. You have also, uh, at times, chosen to speak out yourself on a number of issues from the platforms that you have. And so, Bill, you're in a great position to discuss at least what appears to me from the outside to be a big tension. So there's one camp that a lot of the CEOs, the business leaders are speaking out. It seems more on politically charged issues or potentially controversial issues. I'm not sure whether there's data to support that, but it it seems that way. Surveys that I've seen show that about half of big company executives want their companies to speak out on relevant issues. And most consumers say that CEOs should engage publicly about their social and political views. That's one side of the trend. Then on the other side, you have, I saw a, a bit of research, slightly more than half of consumers say that they would purchase less from a company if they disagreed with the CEO's views. And uh, and, and supporting that, everyone, there is a, uh, it's a great resource um, called the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer Survey, which is produced under the leadership of Dr. Christine Mormon of the uh, of the Fuqua School.
2: Thanks for the plug.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I pay attention to it. I believe it comes out twice per year. And this was a line of questioning to CMOs. And uh, the most recent edition of the survey that came out paints a picture of that marketing leaders are pretty wary of their CEOs. It was only about one in five marketing leaders think the boss. Should take a stance on politically charged issues. I guess they're seeing the downside. So, I'll put it out there to you. In uh, what you've seen and what you've done, understanding all of these perspectives, how do you see this apparent tension in what's a business leader to do in these times?
2: That's the that that's the big question, and I'm I'm not sure I have all the answers, or even any any of the good answers to that question, but but you have to be asking that question. And this is one of the the fundamental shifts that we've seen in recent years around the challenge of business leadership, which is in the past the the idea was well business people stay in their lanes, politicians stay in their lanes, you know, societal issues aren't the responsibility of business leaders and so just focus on your your stakeholders, your customers, your employees and so on. And what's interesting is by focusing on those stakeholders in recent years, it's become clear that you don't have the choice of staying out of these issues, that that your customers may be demanding that you weigh into a political issue or a social issue, that your employees may be demanding that, that your board may be demanding that. And at the same time, you may have forces who are telling you no don't go left go right stay out and so you basically have articulated these these two these two diametrically opposed positions but the reality of of the world we live in today is if you if you are in a situation where you choose not to take action you have actually taken action in the eyes of many people and so if you thought you could just kind of wait things out and be on the sidelines, people will call you out for being on the sidelines. And so effectively, you've made a choice whether you wanted to make a choice or not. And we're seeing this with, with increasing frequency. It's not at all surprising that CMOs get nervous about this because the reality is that you, when you are selling products, you have people buying products who have wildly different views about anything that you could choose and will be on opposite sides of of many issues. And so it becomes very difficult to weigh in on an issue and feel like you're going to have 100% support from everyone in terms of backing your public stance in some way, that's going to be very, very difficult. And so what we're seeing, we have a faculty member here, Ronnie Chatterjee, who's been doing research on, on CEO activism. And one theory that they put forward is that from a customer point of view, we may end up in a world of red brands and blue brands. And and I think this is part of what makes the CMOs nervous, which is why why should we segment the market and have products where we can only sell to one fraction of the population and miss out on another part of the population. I personally don't think that the solution is to evolve to red brands and blue brands. I think that the that the solution is to hold up business in the following sense, which is that one of the challenges we see in society is that we are polarized we we do have many points of conflict many points of contention and we've become a world where we've we've kind of fallen into you're either on my team or you're against me so it's an us versus them kind of mentality and what i find fascinating is in that world of of deep polarization and divides that that are being created over any way that you can categorize people effectively, that we're also seeing this interesting reality that businesses, any any big business or even a, a, a small business, anytime you get to the point where you've you've got more than 10 people working in your firm, you're gonna have people who come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different different genders, different races, different religions, different sexual identities, different countries of origin, you name it, you're going to find people in your company who have a point of difference with one another. And yet, what we see in the best companies is that people come together and they find the upside of these differences, the, the fact that, different backgrounds may lead to different experiences, different insights, and so on, that real innovation happens when we bring people together who do have those differences. And so there's a real upside to difference that companies are finding, and they're getting people with those different backgrounds to work together with common purpose. And so what's happening in the corporate world is all of a sudden, I think we're at a moment in time where the need for taking these social positions connects to the fact that within our own organizations, we've brought people together and that we're an exemplar for society to show you can bring people together and get them to work with common purpose to achieve something great. Now, what that means is that increasingly and, and I apologize if it if it seems like I'm not really answering your question, but to to come back to well, how do you make decisions about when you weigh in, what many companies are are realizing is that they're going to weigh in when something is happening in the world where if they don't weigh in, It's going to make people question whether you really are living according to the values that that drive your organization. And kind of a a recent example of this, which highly controversial, the latest Nike campaign and, and featuring people like Colin Kaepernick and calling attention to some of the real tensions we've been seeing in society, that the reason why Nike moved ahead with that campaign was they felt like at their core this is who we are these are the values that we represent and and so they will they will live with the consequences of a market reaction to that because they know that they need to also live with the consequences of making sure that the people in their ecosystem believe that Nike is, is living up to who they say they are. And so at the end of the day, I think the the tricky thing is that as a, as a leader of an organization, you may have your personal views and your personal values, but at the end of the day, you have a responsibility to your organization to say, I'm not representing my personal values, I'm representing the values of our organization. And you have to be very, very careful that whatever action you take is consistent with those underlying values. And you have to be very, very careful that inaction doesn't erode those values. And so that's part of the reason why you saw the business community be very outspoken after the events in Charlottesville was a fear that if they stayed silent, that it would send a message that they – they didn't actually want to live up to their core values around diversity and inclusion
0: that's the first half of my conversation with bill bolding covering his decision to enter a leadership role the difficulty leaders have staying close to customers how to build consensus for change initiatives and the inherent tensions as ceos speak out on controversial issues check out the second half of our conversation in the next episode as bill and i discuss changes in how top business schools are preparing students for leadership roles of the future, the real differences in millennials from other generations, and how leaders shape culture in their companies. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If so, then please share with friends and colleagues who likewise might find this valuable. And please subscribe, rate, and review. That's the big deal in the podcast world so that others can find us. Thanks again until next time on the Manage Your Message podcast.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.